Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, I sat down and spoke with Saqib Wasim, the CTO at Astra Protocol. Astra Protocol is a decentralized legal layer that provides KYC AML verification of end users while simultaneously protecting their personal identifying information. The platform aims to provide a plug-and-play regulatory compliance layer for the rapidly growing number of DeFi protocols. In this conversation, Sack and I talk about how his background in banking impacted his perspective on blockchain, where the financial industry is today with regards to implementing blockchain technology into their tech architecture, decentralized identity solutions, and the role that Astra plays, and so much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Saqib, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today we are joined by Saqib Wasim, the CTO at Astra Protocol. Astra is on a mission to provide a range of regulatory compliance tools for crypto applications, ensuring financial compliance standards can be met in the Web3 industry. How are you doing today, Sak? Yeah, not too bad, Dylan. Doing good. We're wrapping up the week. It's a Friday, I suppose. It's, uh, things are going great. How about yourself? Doing great for those who are in the ether of the timeless whenever they're listening to this. It is Friday evening where Sock is and very early on Friday morning where I am. And I can't be more excited to have this conversation. It was really fun to dig into Astra and kind of learn more about what's going on. You guys are really hitting it off right now. And I'm excited to have this conversation. Can you just tell us a little bit about who you are at Astra and what you do at Astra? Sure. Well, first, Dylan, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you uh, you inviting us along to the show. Well, I'm the CTO. Uh, I'm also the chief innovation officer, which kind of comes as a pair, really. You can't really have one without the other, I believe. So my main responsibility at Astra is mainly product-focused, I would say. It's about working with the founders and the key executives in the company to ensure that our product is the most innovative, is certainly pushing the bounds of what we see in technology today and really ensuring that we can deliver a solid product. My background and career has been in developing uh, major technology platforms for traditional financial institutions. So it's nothing new in terms of uh, what that means for me from a day-to-day perspective, but it's, um, it's been an incredible journey so far. We're really excited about all the amazing things that we have developed Yeah, so happy to be here and would love to tell you guys a little bit more about Astra today. Yeah, and I want to uh, build the place where you're at right now by talking a little bit about your history. But before we talk about your work experience and the steps that led you to being the CIO and CTO, when was the first time you heard about crypto, Bitcoin, blockchain, Ethereum? When was that? And what were your initial thoughts? It's an interesting story, Dylan. And uh, I first got into crypto and first heard about crypto around 2012. Uh, So I was working for a really huge financial institution, traditional guys. 
I was working on building regulatory compliance solutions to deal with some of the largest high-profile scandals in European and UK banking history. So uh, really, let's call it dry work, if you want to call it that. But one of my employees in my unit actually just, you know, we were having a conversation with him. He said, hey, have you, have you heard about this thing called Bitcoin? And I was like, no, no, tell, tell me some more about it. And he was telling me about all the amazing things that you can do with Bitcoin, how incredible it is. He described it to me as untraceable internet money. So I was like, okay, please explain some more to me about this untraceable internet money. Uh, he started talking about not really from a technical capacity, but you know how this could be a revolutionary commodity or a payment facility around the world and how it's borderless and how interesting it was. So I started looking into it, started doing some research. And um, yeah, I mean, around 2013, between 2012 and 13, I made my first Bitcoin purchase on the back of his recommendation. Plus, I mean, you just had to look at it week by week to see the thing flying up in price. Short-lived, however, because untraceable internet money kind of got a really bad rap because of its nature. It was being used for illicit activities. There was the huge Silk Road bust and price plummeted. But it sparked enough interest in me to start looking at how it can be utilized further. Uh, and then when smart contracts kind of came around, how that could really revolutionize traditional financial institutions in that way to uh, provide greater efficiency and scalability around everything that they were doing. So that's how when I got involved in crypto. And from there, it just, it just kind of spiraled out of control and I, I fell in love with it, I think. Yeah, that's really incredible too. I hope I'm not doxing you or anything, but you, you were working at a bank during that time, presumably. So I'm wondering if uh, it's kind of actually incredible that you took the plunge and you were open-minded because from the conversations I've had with folks who are in the institutional space, they saw Bitcoin as a bit adversarial to their industry and kind of viewed it skeptically and even wrote it off. So what was it that made you kind of keep your mind open? Was it the fact that you were dealing with these large scale international frauds and this space? Uh, did you see an opportunity or were you just excited about this new commodity, internet money type of thing? I kind of looked at it in, in two uh, verticals or, or two waves of thought. One was the, the same as pretty much everybody at the time, which was, well, if I put a little bit of money in this thing and it keeps going up in price, I I could make some good returns on it. And I think that's probably where 99% of people kind of gain their first interest in crypto and still are today, right? Because it's so sensationalized by the yield and the return on it. Uh, but really what continued me on my career and my path into working in blockchain uh, was the underlying technology and frameworks, uh, understanding how there is a lack of transparency when it comes to current or Web2 based financial um, platforms and how blockchain kind of removes that. Uh, it becomes completely transparent. Things become a lot easier in terms of traceability. We've all been in that situation where you send a payment somewhere and it just kind of disappears into the ether. And then a few days later, you get told it's arrived, right? I mean, one thing that I noticed with Bitcoin was you send it and you can see exactly where it is and you know where it, when it lands, right? And there's no intermediary. It removes all of these intermediary payment processors and just provides the most efficient service to, to uh, move assets from one place to another. Plus the immutable record that we were really struggling with internally at uh, these financial institutions, which is 
reconciliation work. I carried out a huge reconciliation project that looked at where assets and where goods were across multiple different, uh, I don't want to call them ledgers, but certainly different databases. So discrepancies and reconciliation work is a huge task if you look at any financial institution, right? Uh, And payment providers too. Bitcoin kind of removed all of that and certainly would have made my job a lot easier if some of the systems that we were using were based on chain. So that's where it started. That's where the enthusiasm came from. And um, it didn't take me overnight. I'm not one of these prophetic people who just made the switch immediately. It took me a good few years. I think over the next two to three years, I really started tinkering around and exploring and, and educating myself on the possibilities of these applications. And I would say it wasn't until around 2015 that I started doing anything meaningful and starting building applications and things that could be put to good use, both in present Web3 world and in the Web2 world as well. I started building some platforms out on that basis. Yeah, I remember I have the excuse of being a broke graduate student when I first heard about Bitcoin in 2013 and just wrote it off. I can't afford this. You know, it was intellectually lazy because I didn't necessarily dig into what it was really offering. It was just a meme on Reddit that I saw and just kind of looked past it. So you started building in 2015. This is around the time of the Ethereum white paper, or maybe Ethereum is just launching, or it's it's right around testnet. So it sounds like maybe a little bit of the features of a smart contract platform might have intrigued you to start building rather than integrating Bitcoin as a payment rail. So maybe you can share a little bit as your time about how you transitioned out of the banking space and into your consulting role. What did that kind of look like as you're starting to build these platforms? What are you doing? Are you doing this for fun? Are you doing this for the companies you consult? What was kind of the thought process like at that time? Well, I was a consultant at these financial institutions. So I kind of left any kind of full-time responsibility with them and started building for them, which put me in a more meaningful position, both personally and also in terms of what I can actually do to improve the financial institutions themselves. When I was building, I was actually providing services out to the banks. And some of the ideas that I was presenting to them were blockchain, smart contract enabled um, services. So things like CRM, customer relationship management tools, things like workflow platforms, or it was a big issue for reconciliation. We didn't know who was doing what, when, and where. I started developing them. It was at that point, really, that I, that I met the founders uh, for Astro Protocol. They were working on some really super futuristic stuff. And I, I got to hand it to the founders, you know, all of them collectively, uh, working on some really visionary stuff when it came to smart contracts and payment services and tokenization and really the future of this industry. I built quite a, a solid reputation as a, as a builder and somebody who can deliver large projects in the financial industry. And through some mutual contracts, uh, contacts, we were introduced. And over a coffee, I think it was actually over dinner, actually, they, they put a pattern in front of me which was around the validation of smart contracts. And um, really, I was looking at peer-to-peer transactions and how things can be validated and the assurance of smart contracts and all these things. And I was like, wow, you guys really are ahead of the time. So we had some discussions around it. They were looking for somebody who, who kind of fit my build. And we hit it off. I thought they had incredible vision. They were tackling large problems. And I thought, hey, I mean, it's nothing new for me. I've built some really significant platforms in my time. And I think this is something that can really change the world when it comes to financial uh, transactions and also enhance where crypto is right now. So I started doing something meaningful. I started building for these guys. And we started tinkering around and deploying lots of different projects together. I was doing some other work as well. But uh, largely, 
it became solely focused on really building some massive platforms for the industry. So we first started looking at blockchain applications for governments because retail adoption was already there. And we thought retail adoption is really going to continue in a path. There are a couple of limiters to this industry in our mind, which was governments, regulators, traditional financial institutions. And that seemed to be the future pinch point of this industry, which lo and behold is where we are right now. So we started delivering some major platforms for governments around the world, looking at how we can provide more trustworthiness from governmental transactions, how we can build in more efficient arbitration solutions, how we can spread that not just for governments, but for massive NGOs around the world. And we started building our reputation with major people in this space, uh, certainly significantly high profile government officials and regulators spanning across all of Europe and the, the EU, all the way across the Far Asia and, and, and of course, the United States and North America as well. And then we started really hitting the, the ground running with the Astra platform. We started looking at, well, we see all of these issues. We see the pinch points in crypto. And the founders made that decision, look, we really got to just go go at this and, and make something of it because it really is a problem that many people are speaking about. We have these incredible patents. How do we build a solution around this and make it meaningful and, and really industry changing? And, and here we are with Astro Protocol now, which is, in, in our opinion, and that's shared by many people around the world, certainly within the industry and others outside of it as well, is how do we bring more trust to this industry? How do we get massive financial institutions involved? How do we get the regulators on side without impacting the general ethos of this industry, which is about peer-to-peer -peer transactions and in some ways anonymity and, and reducing barriers to this industry and solving some of these big pinch points? I mean, if we look at the growth of this industry, let's just look at some timelines, right? We look at 2019 all the way through to 2022. We've seen a massive growth this industry that's only pulled itself back is kind of caused by this perception that the industry is in fact the wild west which i would agree it kind of is i think dylan and i both and, and probably all the listeners today if not directly know somebody who's been scammed in this industry right and that's created some major concerns so how do we bring more trustworthiness to this industry that's being pointed at by regulators and in the light of some massive scandals in the last six months alone how do we bring more trust from their side? How do we get more trust from the public who are looking at things like FTX and Lunaterra and saying, hey, you know, uh, I'm not throwing my money into that thing because uh, I could get scammed. I mean, you, you look at people who are supposedly trustworthy in this industry and, and there is a lack of trust. So we built Astra. It is a regulatory compliance tool. That's quite a mouthful. Really what we do is we do KYC, KYB and AML. So know your customer know your business and anti-money laundering techniques. And it acts as a barrier to bad people doing bad things in this industry. It doesn't stop people from entering. It's not prohibitive. So people can still join in a few clicks. But we're doing it in a way that promotes more inclusivity, wider global coverage. We're doing it in a way that uses tokenization to bring the cost points down and prove all of this on chain as well so that when the regulators look at a crypto ecosystem or a blockchain ecosystem or even a DeFi ecosystem, they can go, actually, everyone in this ecosystem has been validated. They're doing their best effort to keep the bad people out. And it's promoting a safer, cleaner industry. And there are lots of byproducts to that that are so beneficial.
There is a lot that we're going to unpack in what you just said in this conversation. And a lot of it's going to circle around Astra and its services. But before we do that, I do want to just kind of help paint the context for where we've come from and where we're going. So you've been consulting these financial institutions for years. What was the vibe like when you're going to these tables, to these boardrooms, and you're pitching these blockchain-enabled platforms in 2019, maybe versus, let's say, 2021, before the Terra collapse and the FTX scam? There must have been a lot of skepticism because, again, I do view cryptocurrencies and blockchain networks as being kind of a competitor to the banking infrastructure. So maybe before the financial institutions are starting to see how these public ledgers can decrease their costs or anything like that, what was kind of the battle, if you will, like when you're going to have these conversations in 2019? Was it still completely uphill or were banking and financial institutions starting to see how they might be able to integrate these networks into their architecture? Well, I mean, I'll look back to around 2016 as, as like kind of a general time. I pitched some products out to traditional financial institutions that were blockchain-based, right? And they didn't want to have any of it, really. It was, no, what is this? Blockchain is Bitcoin and Bitcoin is Silk Road. So no, we can't do this at all. I don't blame them for that. I mean, any new, exciting cutting-edge technology, most people don't want to be the first people to jump into it, especially when there's kind of been, it's been tarnished by illicit activity as well. And, and banks, in their credit, are so regulated that it would nearly be impossible for them to do that. That doesn't mean everybody said no. Uh, some people got on, you know, into the, the crypto industry very early on. But if you looked at it as a general uh, consensus across the traditional financial institutions, it was a no. Because there just wasn't the use cases there. I mean, it just looked transactional. It looked like peer-to-peer. We weren't really interested in that. You couldn't really figure out where the bank would be involved and ultimately how they could take advantage of this, aside from the obvious, which is adopting the technology. And look, I mean, a million private blockchain solutions were born out of that, right? And some of them are using it today. Um, it doesn't do much, but um, a lot of banks right now are, are exploring it and have their own innovation departments that take, take advantage of blockchain technology as a blanket term. Now, if we compare that to 2021 or even 2022, let's talk about 2022 because I've had some really meaningful conversations with massive institutions. There is a complete 180 in terms of their direction, which is if we don't get behind this thing or we're not involved in this, we're going to be left in the dust because retail could kind of keep banks out of the loop to a certain degree. Almost, right? I mean, traditional banks, centralization point is taking fiat and getting it into crypto. So the banks are always going to have a very, very important role to play in this entire industry, right? And we can either educate them and bring them on site and make them open to the opportunities that exist, or we can kind of stonewall them, which is what this industry has, has been guilty of as well. And ultimately, that just cripples us. It's like shooting ourselves in the foot, right? Mm -hmm. So banks have done their work. They have a lot of the banks that I have spoken to, risk and compliance has been all over it for a couple of years. They've got their head around where the liabilities are and how they exist. And the innovation departments can kind of start tinkering around and deploying meaningful things. I would say we're still a little bit away from banks saying, hey, you know, Bitcoin is everything or we're going to fully adopt stable coins as a means. But then you can start looking at 
really challenger banks. And I'll point to uh, Sabre Bank, which is a Swiss bank, and they do both hot wallet, cold wallet custody of, of crypto. And that's perfectly normal there, right? So you do have a lot of innovation on that end. I would say the next step is banks playing more of a meaningful role in things like DeFi, which is very exciting and is happening. A lot of people are very skeptical about how they would become part of that, but they are they're very much in there right now is what I can tell you. And, and there are a lot of things happening in the background, certainly with Astra Protocol, where we are facilitating a lot of traditional banks entering into, I don't want to call them subnets, because I think subnets are just a thing that's going to come and go, but they're going to be involved in DEXs and providing liquidity on chain as well, so that that can be taken advantage of. Let's look at it from a problem statement perspective. DEXs are great, but generally small transaction size compared to traditional finance, right? And if you're a whale or you're a big institution, or maybe you're a trader who has his own who has his own shop and you want deep liquidity, you just can't really do that on a DEX. And sorry to all the Uniswap fans out there and the bank Uniswap <laughs> fans out there who, who are probably screaming at me right now, but it's just not achievable in the same capacity as it is in traditional finance. So ultimately, where does that capital come from? How can we get that capital and how can we bring it into this industry? And that's where the banks will play a key, uh, a key role to this. I would say the banks are there. However, in light of recent scandals, again, it spooked them. And I would say, again, it's a trust thing, right? I mean, we build this trust in the industry and then it falls down on itself. So it's up to companies like Astra Protocol to reinstill that trust and then drive that next wave of adoption, which is going to come in two veins. More retail trust, which is ultimately going to come after more traditional institutions get involved in a serious way. Yeah, that's a very good point because there's only so much liquidity. And if you're moving capital around with volume, then there's a lot of slippage that you're going to run into. And it just doesn't make any sense from a large scale perspective to kind of onboard into these ecosystems when you can't really move around the capital that you're moving around on a, gen- on a day-to-day basis. Something that is a really big value prop that at its surface level sounds really simple, but I kind of want to dig in more into what this really means. Uh, before we started recording, we were talking about one of your advisors, Mick Mulvaney, and he's quoted saying, if you have the ability to make a three-party transaction to a two-party transaction, you have the ability to change the world. So it sounds like the banks are coming around to this, but maybe for the retail user or someone who's not so familiar with the institutional side of things, can you highlight why this statement is such a big deal? I mean, firstly, it just makes an amazing guy, right? He's, he's an incredible advice to have on board. And, and, and we really pride ourselves at Astra by having the best advisory board team, I would say. We are second on in the crypto industry as a whole space. In mixed credit as well, he really knows what he's talking about. Uh, he's the guy who set up the blockchain caucus uh, over in the States. So uh, he's really passionate about all things involved in this technology. But where his particular view, as he's quoted in saying, is, is really around infrastructure changes, right? And that, look, efficiency is a very key thing in this industry. And right now, it just isn't efficient. In order to get deep liquidity, you're probably looking at using OTC desks, right? Again, which is going to kind of take things off chain and then you're stuck into that intermediary. You're going to either use crypto to fund it, but if you're looking for big 
cash and capital, you're probably going to go through a bank anyway, right? So why not just bring the banks on chain? Why not allow them to leverage some of that risk, uh, risk capital and put it on chain, right? And it doesn't necessarily have to be in the, the latest meme coin. I'm not saying that traditional banks are going to go and buy, you know, Doge, but they might well. It'll just take a little bit of time. I'd say where they're more likely to be involved is in your, your kind of big, your big assets like your Bitcoin, um, like Ethereum, anything of a similar standing. And of course, some of the stable coins that are out there as well. So by really bringing the traditional banks in, you're going to allow us to leverage more capital. So that means that, as you said, price slippage doesn't become an issue anymore, right? So you can get deeper transactional liquidity, which means that it becomes more efficient then. Now you can start bringing in a wider range of users into crypto as well. People who have a lot more money and want to trade a little bit bigger. And even to the smaller customers as well. I mean, it doesn't have to be all about big money in this industry. It just means that transactional throughput is going to be a lot more efficient because you've got a deeper pool of money to access. If you want to trade, the money is there. You don't have to wait five minutes for it to appear. We've all been there. We've gone on our decks and we've clicked calculate and it works out and it's processing and it I'm sorry, it just can't execute because the funds aren't there or too many people are trying to access it at the same time. So bringing in the traditional banks is going to remove that third party. It's going to take three-party transaction to a two-party transaction. However, there are a lot of things that are needed to bring the banks in, right? Yeah. And so now we're kind of at the part of the arc where Astra is filling in the gaps and you're using your advisory board and your personal experience working in this financial institutional sector into providing what banks need, which is basically KYC AML. So what are the types of regulatory compliance tools and other services that Astra offers these institutions that they themselves couldn't provide? I mean, there are a couple of things that we do. Firstly, there are, there are two inception points to this industry. There are, there are two meeting points. There is the centralized area. So you take your money and you get it into crypto and you probably use a centralized exchange to, to actually get your money in there, right? And then there is the other end, which is your unhosted wallets, your MetaMask, your Trust Wallet, whatever you might be using to actually trade in the decentralized world. So how do we bring everybody together in the decentralized space? So how do we cut out that third party where people just want to buy from a centralized exchange and then remove it from the centralized exchange and put it on their wallet, right? Well, that would be just simply to purchase it via your wallet or use a party to do that. And you need to be able to access the bank's capital as well to do it. Um, so we provide uh, a number of different solutions for that. Uh, there are really three major ones, right? If we cut to the heart of it, that's know your customer, know your business and anti-money laundering. So know your customer is effectively the, the end user, so the retail user. How do we know that this person is not involved in illicit finance? There are many people saying, boo, you're, you're speculating on this industry being full of criminals right now and illicit things. But the truth is that it, it is being used by illicit parties around the world. And in times of geopolitical tension, where we see war erupting in Europe and in other places as well, or on, you know, on, on the cusp of Europe, there is a concern by many governments out there that funds could be moving uh, in anonymized means through decentralized platforms, right? And nobody wants to be proxy through that. So first, validate users coming to this industry. But we do not sacrifice the key things of this industry, like being able to remain anonymous, uh, being able to transmit and transact with who you want and choose to who, with whom you can transact with as well. And then there's the other side, know your business. So traditional bank wants to come in, 
they need to get checked as well. It shouldn't just be about the end user. It should also be the other parties. Well, how do we know that the party involved, the business that wants to provide liquidity is trustworthy as well? So we validate those guys. And now we have this amazing thing in the middle. We have provable on-chain, healthy and safe user from a, a customer standpoint. And now you have a provable, healthy asset from a bank that have been converted into crypto. So now the bank can actually create its own liquidity pool on a DEX, right? It can say, okay, is a parameter on a DEX, which simply says this liquidity pool can now be accessed by anybody who's been validated on the other side. That guy can transact with whomever he wants, right? I mean, it doesn't stop you from sending it over to another wallet or trading with an unvalidated pool. But now we have this big DEX that now has is able, in a non-mandatory way, I might say, to facilitate a whole new spectrum of transactions. You can trade with a bank, you can access that deep liquidity, and you can send it elsewhere if you need to as well. I think that's the next step of this industry. That's what Astra is really focused on, is, is really allowing the decentralized aspects and decentralized solutions to really scale. But we're not just stuck with that. I mean, our solution is much more efficient than traditional products as well. Where we place the products is, is very straightforward, Dylan. We provide that to the DeFi applications and centralized applications the same. It's a compliance tool. So most companies need it. And because we're doing it in a way that's more innovative, more trustworthy, and more cost-effective than most providers right now, I'm not going to take any shots or, or call anybody out, but let's just say that there's major providers. And as a benchmark, we're about 30% more cost-effective. So... I mean, look, it's, it's, it's becoming painfully obvious that Astra is, is the go-to solution for those needs in the industry. Mm -hmm. And I want to get into the cost differences in a minute, but I do want to dig a little bit into the tech first. So how are we doing these KYC, KYB, AML checks? Are we using something like zero-knowledge proofs? Does Astra store this information on a secured vault elsewhere? I'm assuming this is all part of the decentralized legal network. So could you just share a little bit about what the tech is like? Like how can I as an end user feel confident that I've provided the information to validate and verify my identity, but now I won't have to deal with a breach like Equifax did in 2017 or 2015, I think it was. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's very straightforward. We separate two pieces of information. A user comes to us and wants to get their wallet validated, right? Or the current address that they're using. In order to do KYC, you need to prove that you're a real person. And in this industry, they get you in and of itself, right? Uh, but you also need to prove that you're a trustworthy individual. So there is a requirement to provide some identification for that. We separate. Now, the, the biggest concern for most people then is, uh, now you've got my identity and you've got my wallet at the same time. It, that becomes a little bit tricky and a little bit scary. And are you going to share that with the decks? And what if a breach happens on the decks' side? Like, what, what? It all gets a bit confusing for people. From our side, we keep it really simple. Your personal identity information is never stored in the same place through our architecture as your crypto information, as you can call it, right? Uh, we keep everything that is personally identifiable information on secure servers, and we're at, we are bringing out our own identity application as well. So our own decentralized identity solution to actually squash any concerns about a user's information being held on the server. It can simply live on your device. And your blockchain information is going to live completely far removed from that. 
We operate everything under multiple data privacy laws as well and data security privacy standards as well so that we do everything to ensure that all our information is safe, well-provisioned, and for an added level of trust as well. We actually use a blockchain ledger service that allows you to see where your information is being stored, who it's accessed by, if it's changed, if it's removed, and the end user has access to all of that. So Dylan, if you came onto Astra Services and you signed up and you got KYC'd, you'd be able to see where your information is being stored, if anybody has accessed it, if any changes have happened, and you can always request the right to remove that information as well. You can delete it, you can provision it elsewhere if you want to, you can destroy it and make sure it's not there. And you'll be able to see all of that because, again, we're using blockchain to actually have an invisible proof of that. And you know, you might just say, well, that's all well and good. What if Astra has all the nodes? Well, we just provision nodes out to other people so that Astra isn't taking this centralized position on that. We have external audit companies that hold those nodes. So you can actually really trust it because we're not single point of failure at that point. Absolutely. That's really interesting. What if like uh, I want to change my wallet or I lie and I say that my identity is attached to this wallet is there like some sort of like ZK badge I can send to another wallet? Or do I need to reach out to you guys individually and say, hey, Astra, uh, I'm going to start using a new wallet. Can you attach this to my previous PII that I provided? Nope. You're going to do it again, Dylan, is the short answer. <laughs> and the reason, for, the reason for that is we, we hired another really significant person onto our advisory board. She's called Kirsten Nielsen, right? Uh, she's the former head of Homeland Security and Cybersecurity for the U.S. federal government. So looking at problems of fraud, looking at people trying to get around systems is nothing new to her. Uh, and in her credit, she raised a couple of questions and concerns to us, which is, what if a user is held under duress when they sign up to your application? So what if they're being forced to do it on behalf of another person? And what if they lie as well? So how do you deal with these issues? So we looked at a broad spectrum of use cases that fall into what we call the unhappy path. So if people try and do weird or strange things in our solution, we basically came to the conclusion that if you want to validate a new wallet, you need to go through the process and make sure that you're validating and proving it. That doesn't mean that we need the same level of information. Of course, there are ways to link multiple branches to different wallets. However, you will need to verify and prove that you, you are in control of it. Otherwise, we'd run into that same issue, which is Dylan, uh, Sack, I don't really feel like doing it. My reputation is not the best. Would you mind filling out this form for me? Yeah, sure, no problem. I can do it. Well, you know, if you don't revalidate yourself, if you don't prove that you're still in control of that wallet, your creds will drop as well. And we can highlight that as a... So it works in two veins, right? I mean, if you lose access to your service, you want to make sure that a validated wallet is not just floating out around there, right? You also want to make sure that it um, is conditional and that if those conditions are not fulfilled, that validates proof will, will destroy itself. So we've built that into our service as well. Cool. And it sounds like it'll be on the end user to determine how they want to use different networks. And from what I've gathered, it sounds like the most uh, prominent use case right now might be with DEXs. But what are some other verticals in the crypto space that your retail end and institutional end clients are interested in participating in with a validated identity. Are we talking about like large NFT purchases? Are we talking about participation in DAOs? What are kind of like the innovative ways in which both sides of the spectrum of Astra's users are looking into the crypto space? 
You touched on a really good one there, actually, DAOs, DAO infrastructure. So we have a partner called Inc. Finance. Inc. Finance is DAO infrastructure. It basically allows you to create a DAO and have lots of different permission controls around it. So you can have a DAO that's completely an anon, right? And God help the SEC ever, ever chase you down on that one and you accidentally dodge right? Um, and then you can have a validated DAO, which is you do things in a responsible way and you can actually bring businesses in. Astra can validate all of those users and all of the different geographies that it, that those users sign up from. We cover 150 countries, uh, more than that, in fact. So it's it's a godsend to anybody who's building a DAO, or in the case of Inc. Finance, facilitating other people to create DAOs. Um, so that's one example where both businesses and retail users can kind of be all melded in the same pot there. Another instance, and there is KYC happening, but it is centralized as well, is in the lending and borrowing space. So you can look at some of the big players out there. And again, I'm not in the habit of calling out names of companies out there, but I can guarantee everybody today, if you're using a lending and borrowing site for any purpose right now in crypto, and um, you you have to use KYC for it, I can pretty much, with a very fine degree of certainty, tell you, they're using a centralized KYC provider, which means that that lending and borrowing site knows exactly who you are, where you are, what you're doing. They have access to all of your information and you don't know what they're doing with it. Plus the application that's using it as well. I mean, if there is any provision services that are external third parties, they'll have access to your information as well. Not just your wallet address, but also all of the lending and borrowing activities that you do. I mean, who would you rather go with? A centralized application or a decentralized application that protects your identity and makes you responsible for that information as well. Yeah, I'm curious because when you ask that question, obviously I would err towards the decentralized end of the spectrum, but I've been a DGEN since 2017. So are you starting to see maybe uh, not necessarily the retail DGEN coming along to this thought pattern? Are you also starting to see like large scale enterprise financial industry starting to grok the significance of a decentralized PII storage? Absolutely. I mean, think about it. If you're a massive organization and you have all of this data to protect and manage and you you named a couple of scandals yourself in there, I mean, it just becomes easier. If you just cut out all of the, the technology craziness and the blockchain stuff, what you have with Astra is a KYC solution that is faster, more cost-effective, and more provable and more trustworthy. And I think it just becomes pretty obvious at that point. If you're a centralized service and you can, or a Web2 service, and you can save 30% of your average cost uh, with the current client you have, and you have a really strong solution that's being adopted by major institutions around the world, it becomes a no-brainer. I mean, we've seen a, a huge range of different companies interested in using, utilizing our service that goes to major traditional banks. It moves over to decentralized exchanges, lending and borrowing applications. We touched on in finance and those guys to people who are working on credit reference tools for this industry as well. So shout out to the Credify guys and their smart score as well. You know, they're building out some interesting things that also require people to actually understand whether people have a, a shaky Web2 history or even the Web3 component of it as well, looking at on-chain analytics to see whether you've, you know, you've been entangled in uh, mixes or other things like that as well. And I know I kind of have a an understanding for what answer you might provide based off of the conversations I've had with folks who are dealing with uh, financial institutions such as yourself. But maybe for a listener of the Smart Economy podcast who hasn't necessarily had these types of conversations, 
Why exactly is a decentralized solution so much more cost-effective than a centralized solution? Because from what I've gathered, it can cost upwards of billions of dollars a year to maintain an architecture and infrastructure from within a bank. So maybe that's a little bit along the lines of where we're going to start seeing these decentralized solutions start to offer cost cutting or decreased costs. So could you just share a little bit more about the details and inner workings of those cost differences? Yeah, I mean, look, if you're running a cloud service, it can get pretty costly if you're running hundreds of billions of transactions a year, right? So there's ultimately architectural costs that come into this. And this is just me putting my CTO hat on and then obviously maintenance and security and all of these crazy things on top of that. It gets very expensive if you're a bank. Uh, Using decentralized infrastructure, those costs are shared between lots of different people. So it becomes a lot more manageable. But again, it kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is you start to remove a lot of inefficiencies from the end-to-end process. And if we use a really simple example, which I touched on at the start of our conversation, it was around sending money. So you live in a different country to me, and I want to send you some money, right? Let's say I, I wire it, or I use faster pay services or ACH or anything like that, and I send it to you. The first thing that my bank's going to do is say, well, okay, let's just check out this money and make sure it's it's coming from the right person in the right place, Right. And then it needs to go to another party that will probably convert the currency over into something that I need. They'll do their checks on their end. And then eventually, it'll land with you. In that time frame, lots of third parties have had access to it. There are parties in the middle that will try and leverage that capital and make some money from it in the end. And at the end of it, you're paying the cost. So I'll lose some money in the transaction for sending it to you. And you won't be left with everything that I sent at the start as well. So you're losing out as well. But there are lots of parties in the middle that have profited from that as well, and it becomes incredibly inefficient. Plus, also, for the bank's experience for their customers, I mean, it's not the best experience. Banks aren't bad. They provide an incredibly, you know, you know, an incredible necessity to this world. And they are responsible for everybody's day-to-day life in, in one capacity or another, right? So we can't paint them as the bad guys because they're actually doing a lot of good out there as well in, in helping us just live uh, from a day-to-day perspective. But I think they've realized as well that their current processes are inefficient. And there are lots of ways in blockchain that they can explore that. If they started moving to more decentralized services, they would probably see more efficiency, but it's not jump both feet into the pool, right? You kind of got to do it with measure. You've got to do it with caution. You've got to see whether it will actually work for you, right? You've got to set up pilots. You've got to see if there's interest. And then you've got to see if you can make money at the end of it as well, because ultimately they are businesses, right? And if all of those things can be checked off, and we're we're absolutely certain about the efficiencies because it removes a number of parties, right? Then they absolutely will. And that's why we see a lot of them involved. And as I said earlier, it probably might not be things like meme coins and, and the thousand nexes that us DGENs are seeing all the time, right? But it might be more stable assets or considerably more stable assets that they might put more high-risk capital into. And then slowly, as they start to realize and see this actually tangibly happening for them, they, they actualize these benefits from efficiency and cost saving, well, then the transition becomes a lot smoother and a lot easier. But it becomes risk calculated at all times. There's a huge focus on risk. And that is where Astra becomes hugely important. We minimize risk between all those parties because without necessarily seeing that person's name and address and all those things, you have 
multiple parties through our decentralized legal network validating. So you have trustworthy organizations effectively acting as oracles to validate the KYC was done correctly. So you can trust the information. It's mutable. It's on chain. Everybody in this whole ecosystem now can say, okay, I can trust this wallet. And it actually is a human and I'm not sending it somewhere else as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of the really kind of cool bullet points when you go to the Astro website is that there's you guys operate in more than 100 countries and you integrate more than 300 sanctions lists. So what is the process like for adding these sanctions lists to uh, Astra's database? Is it as simple as like a copy-paste CSV file? And what is the process like for operating in a new country? I mean, God bless the devs at Astra because we don't make it easy for them. I mean, it's a huge task, right? So Avald uh, and the guys in my team, they are they're wizards, I will say that. It is simply, you, you, we've built out a matrix that allows you to plug different um, sanction and screening lists and then we can run the user cred against that. Again, separating PII and crypto information because you've got to run a wallet address against on-chain and then you've got to take a user's identity and run it against the sanctions list, right? So we do both. We've made it easy from our side, but also these lists are updated in real time as well. And it's retrospective. So part of AML is continuously monitoring them in case there's any threats. So let's say that I am a, a master criminal and I've gotten away with it for 30 years. And all of a sudden tomorrow I get found out when I appear on the UN watch list. Well, from the moment that I get added to it, Astro will flag that user up and it'll stop them if necessary or without becoming a centralization point that says, yes and no, this person can enter and that person can't enter. We highlight that to the decks that may have already built a rule set around who that wallet can interact and trade with, right? To minimize the risk to another party. Awesome. And I know that you have repeatedly mentioned that you're not one to uh, throw around any names in a negative light. So maybe uh, just to help the listeners kind of get a better understanding of this space, can you just maybe share some examples of centralized and decentralized competitors to the Astro Protocol? I'm going to brag here, Dylan, actually. So go for it. Apologize if it's a little bit cringeworthy. There are no competitors to our service, firstly. Not in the same breath as to what Astra does. Firstly, nobody has been able to build the decentralized legal networks, the capacity that we have and bring in massive institutions like KPMG and others, right? Really big names. Secondly, We've got global patents around what we do, as I mentioned at the start of our conversation. So nobody can really tread on us when it comes to what we've built and where we're going with it, right? And the third thing is as well, I mean, we have an incredible advisory board. We've got a huge amount of reach and we have put years of work into this. I mean, you're talking over four years of engaging with governments, engaging with regulators, being part of this community of crypto builders, uh, actually being on the ground, being at every single convention all year round, minus East Denver, which I've missed a couple of times since we discussed. Um, so we've really put the work in. So there is no real competitor. There are people who offer similar services to what we do, but we can poke holes in their service and, and call them out all day, right? Look at your centralized providers. Look at your Jumios, for instance, and then look at centralized providers that guise themselves as decentralized as well and don't really have any on-chain provability. Just basically take a, a feed of Web3. So you have those guys too. What Astra is really good at is managing both sides of this. There is a Web2 element to all of this. There is understanding who a person is in the real world. And then there is a digital version of that, which is your crypto persona. There is huge amounts of disparity. Astra wraps all of that under one banner, 
and does it in a way that protects the user's information, allows us to do this in a transactionally superior way to others as well, and of course, verifies and validates all of this through the decentralized legal network. So whilst I'm, I'm bragging a little bit here, Dylan, I kind of batted your question off, I know, <laughs> but um, we're doing great things. I can say that comfortably. I think in your answer, uh, you provided enough threads for people to pull if they want to go down this rabbit hole. So kind of uh, wrapping up, I do want to talk a little bit about the Astra token. Uh, so can you just share a little bit about what the purposes of the token and the ecosystem and what kind of role does it have with your institutional side clients and your retail side clients? Okay. There are lots of different verticals to this, so I'll, I'll cover the really specific technical stuff first, because as a CTO, that's probably where my head should be at, right? So let's get that out of the way. So Astra's utility is being able to efficiently manage requests from individuals. And let's break that down into a way that's easy to understand. So Astra has lots of clients, right? And each of these clients have millions of customers that are all trying to get KYC at once because we're amazing at what we do. So if customers want 50, all fire out requests at the Astra service at once, how do we prioritize and to what depth do we prioritize without then having to batch customers, which makes things very slow? If you look at why most centralized applications are slow, it's because they batch them. So how does Astra avoid that, right? We have a prioritization and a queuing mechanism. That means that all these different apps can go ahead, buy the Astra token on the secondary market. They can lock them into the Astra dashboard, which is done via smart contracts. Again, very transparent. Now, once they've locked them into the Astra dashboard, we're able to rank each of these applications. So it does become a little bit of a pay-to-play service, but without negatively impacting people who are new and just want to get dip their toe and just get involved. So we then rank all these applications within a time box window. So as they've all fired transactions at us, we can simply say, this is the order in which those transactions should be dealt with in an efficient manner. And as more transactions come through to maintain efficiency, we narrow that time box window. And then as we get less, I'd say two o'clock in the morning when people aren't doing, want to do their KYC, it broadens up again. So it's flexible time window, allows us to rank applications. But if we talk about like the practical side of it, like what does it really mean for a business? What does it mean for an end user? Uh, well, if you're a customer, typically you don't pay for your KYC, right? I mean, normally you go into an application, ask you to fill it out and you go ahead and do it. So you can do that. You can jump onto an app, you can do your KYC with them and you're done. So from a retail end user, you don't really see too much unless you want special privileges. We know how static KYC is. You have to you know, basically uh, rinse and repeat for each of these different applications and do your KYC. And now instead of one person having your driver's license, 30 of them do because you've got the, the, the buzz for DeFi overnight. Uh, with Astra, if you come direct to Astra and you do your KYC rather than going to a third party and you hold some tokens again by a smart contract in your wallet, give you access to that entire ecosystem. So you come direct to us and DKYC with us. So that's the only point that you'll feel it. The basics of this is very simple, right? Apps buy our token, they lock them so we can prioritize them. When a transaction hits, we'll remove some tokens so that we're creating a competitive marketplace. Uh, those tokens are moved into an Astra lockup, so they're removed from that lockup, the DAP lockup on the dashboard. They're sent to Astra, 
Astra then rewards everybody who's involved in that transaction. So if you have lots of validators coming from major legal companies, they will all get a slice of that. And whatever remains for Astra, we do a few things to them. We burn them. We provide rewards when you want to re-lock your, app, uh, your tokens after a period of time. So we provide rewards back to our customers as well to keep the cost point down. Uh, and then we use it for growth. I mean, we want to grow the company. We want to ensure that we're able to provide more decentralized solutions to the market and do greater good with it as well. And um, pay our devs as well. I think that's important too. provide rewards to them. So it sounds like uh, the Astro token can kind of lock in adapts front of the line ability to uh, verify the customers once they hold X amount of tokens to kind of put them to that point in the line. So wrapping up, I want to kind of talk about a larger big picture from my perspective issue. In the States right now, we're seeing a lot of negative press with SEC enforcements when it comes to regulations. So right now, uh, an individual could think that it might not be the best place to start a crypto company in the States, but this isn't the status for the rest of the world. You see a lot of crypto forward regulators in other countries. So just generally speaking, what's your stance on regulations and regulatory bodies around the world? And what are the ways in which Astra is being nimble enough to work with, A, the regulators who are the most forward thinking, but also being able to work with regulators who might be a little uh, hard-headed right now? I mean, look, we have good relationships with regulators all over the world. So your big guys in North America, your, your SEC and others, we've had regular dialogue with, right? And first, the industry is kind of painting them out to all be lizards and, and, and crazy people who want to kill the industry. And, and some, that might be true, some of them, right? But not generally speaking. I mean, what the SEC and others are trying to do, be it conducive or not, is provide more consumer protection so that there aren't any more issues in the future where people can get scammed because it's pretty easy to get scammed right now. But unfortunately, what they've been really bad at is actually getting anything out there that says it's either security or it's not, and you can do this and you can't do this, right? Because there are so many outlier cases in, in the industry. So they've been very slow to actually get anything out. And I think you know since 2012, maybe earlier, They've had the opportunity really to do something and they just haven't really delivered much. That's not the responsibility of one person. It's a group of people across multiple regulators in North America. And I think with FTX as well, given that it was so prominent across the states and mostly impacted in, you know, mostly international investors, it kind of left a bit of a smudge on the page for the regulators in that they could have done something or they could potentially stop something in the future. So that's put a little bit of fire behind them at the moment. And I think that's what we're seeing, certainly from my perspective anyway, is that they're making a bigger push to stop things potentially becoming issues in the future. The problem is, is that whilst they're investigating and while they're threatening lawsuits, they're not really passing any policies or making any decisions either which way. They're kind of leaving it up to the courts to make a decision for them, which I think is probably the wrong way to do this. And what Astra is really primarily focused on is speaking with regulators to say, hey, look, crypto is faster than you. It's going to move faster than you, and it always will. So the policies that you make that you probably should have made 10 years ago, 
people are smart in this industry. So they're developers and they're problem solvers. So they'll try and find a way around it as well. If not, they'll just move to a different country and provide their services to people outside of the industry. Nobody wants the US to fall behind. Not a single regulator, not a government official wants to lose the competitive edge when it comes to technology, potentially becoming more efficient from a financial perspective. So what we're doing is we're bridging that gap speaking with regulators to say, hey, look, this is where crypto is right now. Here are some of the issues. Here is how we can resolve it. Here's where Astro plays a role. And we're happy to provide more education to you and how we can do those services as well. Um, so we do a lot of that. We do a lot of talking with the right people in, in, uh, in regular, uh, sorry, from a regulatory perspective to make them aware of what is happening in the industry, good, bad, and indifferent. And here's where our solution falls in the middle. And this is what we're doing to actually bridge that gap of, of those differences. And largely... They're very appreciative of that. They're all humans at the end of the day. Um, nobody wants to, to feel uh, uneducated or feel like they've, they've missed a beat either. And that creates an environment where you can have mistrust as well. People just making the wrong decision. So we're primarily involved in education, but speaking with people right at the top as well, because it, it trickles down. If you can change the hearts and minds of the people at the top and make them aware that there are good people and there is a good opportunity to do things the right way in this industry and really make it meaningful with good infrastructure, well, then, of course, we'll have their buy-in. And policy change will become a lot easier and you know they can finally make some decisions. Mm-hmm. Just from kind of an international perspective, I know that sometimes Americans can suck the air out of the room just with the way that this country's operated in the past hundred years. So beyond kind of like the SEC issues, is this kind of like a negative, uh, like a dusty cloud, you know, hearing all this news about the SEC when there's a lot more positive that's happening in other jurisdictions around the world? I mean, look, um, the US aren't alone in, in, in acting slow or slow to make decisions as well. There are lots of countries out there that have done that. There are probably some better examples of countries where government have, have taken a good step forward and, and built some good clarity. The UAE, Dubai, Abu Dhabi done a tremendous job in a top-down policy perspective. They write the rules, they make the decisions, and they roll it out. And if they need to make changes, they'll do that quickly and enact on it fast as well. One thing that has been incredible as well, it's actually looking at the uh, the FSB as well, looking at the guidance that they're providing for more, um, I would say, unilateral solutions in terms of policy and guidance for, for uh, you know a whole host of countries as well. So, But ultimately, who does that fall on? Uh, it's again going to fall on the securities and commodities commissions and regulators within each of these countries as well. But at least we're getting somewhere. At least we have some more uniformity in the way of thinking. I just think that we're so used to moving fast in this industry that we can see it moving at a snail's pace. In some cases, like the US, it really kind of has. But I wouldn't expect it to stay that way given the light of recent scandal. Awesome. Uh, This has been a great conversation. I've had an hour of your time. I really appreciate it. So if anybody wants to learn more about Astra, keep up to date with you, check out where they can uh, find the token on a secondary market. What are ways in which people can kind of tap in? Well, certainly if you want to know more about us, head to astraprotocol.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. So, uh, you know, just look look for Astra Protocol on Twitter as well. Uh, we have a really bustling community on Telegram. So if you're a Telegram user, search for the Astra Protocol official channel as well. Uh, and of course, uh, we launched on exchanges as well. So if you've done all your research, this is in no way financial advice, of course. But if you're interested in acquiring Astra tokens, you can obviously do that on a number of international exchanges. We have Gate, we have KuCoin, and we have Mexi. So those are the three exchanges we have right now. Uh, if you don't find us there, be patient. 
make sure you're following our Telegram because we have lots of updates on additional exchanges that Acker will be joining. So uh, some good news for the US side too. Zach, this was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights into decentralized identity solutions and just for sharing your perspective on where we're going as an industry and where we've came from. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Dylan. Look, and I really appreciate you having us on. And hopefully this was informative to the listeners. We're great at outreach as well, guys. So if this has provoked any thoughts and you've got questions for the Acre team, head over to our Telegram and we'll reply to you there. Awesome. Well, have a great evening. Appreciate it. You too. All the best. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I thought Zach's perspective was really insightful, particularly with regard to the level of experimenting that financial institutions are currently doing with crypto and blockchain, but that there also was a breach of trust after the FTX collapse in 2022 that might be making them a little more cautious. It was also super interesting to hear that banks are taking things like DeFi a little bit more seriously at the risk of being left behind in the new financial innovation that is occurring right now. And it was really great to hear more about how Astra balances the principles of decentralization with things like identity and storage but still acts as a centralized entity that regulators and larger institutions can feel confident having conversations with. On that note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep Neo News Today in mind when voting for your Neo Council representative as part of Neo's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.